good to have you guys here tonight, um, diving into the book of Mark. And, and I, was, uh, I was thinking today, uh, and actually it's something my wife and I have been talking about uh, recently, is movies. Um, and, and before there was Ron Burgundy in the Channel 5 news station, before there was Harry and Lloyd, um, there was Lucky, Dusty, and Ned. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? What? The, the Three Amigos. The Three Amigos. Um, and how many of you have seen that? Okay, so like a quarter of you will get the entire weight of the sermon. The rest of you are just doomed. Um, but I love the three amigos, and actually, there's a, there, and I tweeted out today, so you can go find it. Um, there's a buttercup dance scene they do in a bar um, where they sing My Little Buttercup together. Me and a buddy in high school had choreographed that dance, and we would just do it for fun, because that's what you do in high school, is you sing buttercup to each other. Um, but one of the best scenes in the movie that, that really just gets it that the idiocy of these three dudes wandering around thinking they're in a movie, but they're actually getting shot at by real people, um, is the scene where they're, they're riding on their horses in the desert, and you see the sun beating down on them, and they're all sweating and, and kind of panting, and they all stop to get a drink. And all three of these guys pull out their canteens, um, and Lucky, uh, who's played by Steve Martin, reaches down, and he pulls out his canteen and tilts it up, and there's this little stream of water, and then he's just like grasping for more water, but there's nothing in his canteen. And then it goes over um, to Ned, and Ned lifts up his canteen. And I still get weirded out when I see this because he's just opened his mouth expecting water and just sand pours straight into his mouth. And so he like gags and spits up on the sand. And then it shows uh, Dusty. And Dusty takes the lid off his canteen and just pours and pours and pours and then starts kind of like bathing in it. Um, And he's still, it's still pouring. And then he's like, Oh, that was good. And he throws the canteen on the ground, and the rest of the water is just flowing out onto this parched earth. And then Dusty grabs, what does he grab? He grabs lip balm, and he starts, and he, he puts it in his fingers, and he's like... And he looks at these other two guys, and they're just staring at him with this look like... And, and, and Dusty just says, lip balm? <laughs> like, like, that was what these guys wanted from him. And here he had what they needed, um, and he totally missed the need of these people. And what this movie makes humorous, really the gospel and the gospel writers and the New Testament writers, they make this urgent. This idea of seeing a perceived need and either acting rightly or acting poorly to it. And we're going to dive into the book of Mark tonight, and we're going to see that we, uh, as Christians, are in the same situation as Dusty. We have something that the world needs. But I'm going to hope, and what Jesus is going to paint a picture for us in parables of, is that we, we find a gospel motivation to share rather than a foolish reason um, to be blind to the needs around us. Because that was really the issue. It was simply that he was blind. It wasn't that he was stubborn. It was that he was so zoned in on his life that he didn't think that what he had was really of great need to those who were around him. So if you haven't already opened your Bibles, as Luke told you, then you don't respect Luke's authority. Um, So maybe you can respect mine uh, and open up to Mark chapter 4. I didn't hear any pages turning, Luke, so you got them. Um, And what we're going to look at today is three parables. Um, Really, chapter 4 is the only parables that we get in Jesus' life in the book of Mark. And so we're going to really finish the weight of Jesus' teaching in parables today. And Jesus is giving parables to the crowd. We saw last week that he went out on a boat and is speaking to these crowds. Um, And actually, they found on the Sea of Galilee, um, I think they call it the the Bay of... um, the Bay of Parables or something like that, but it's this 
this weird bay on the Sea of Galilee that they think is where Jesus went, and it has this weird amplification that happens where someone can be out a certain distance from the shore, and just the natural amphitheater it creates let them speak to thousands. And so this is the scene Jesus is at here. Um, and as we look at these three parables, they all can communicate different themes and nuances um, and different individual strands, but they really weave together to communicate one solid theme. And that theme we're going to look at tonight um, is that the Bible ha- or the gospel has the power to save from judgment and bring us into a new kingdom. The gospel has power to save us from judgment and bring us into a new kingdom. So let's pray, um, and we'll get rolling. Dear Lord, uh, yeah, as Sean said, this is a fun night where we gather together um, as friends. We gather together to have a good time, but ultimately we want to gather together under your word. Um, because when all else fades, uh, your word remains, and the gospel remains, and our, our, our position before you is of eternal importance. And so I pray um, that your gospel does, as you promised it does, that it labors on us faithfully, um, that it deals with us tenderly, um, but also it pushes us where we need to be pushed, rebukes us where we need to be rebuked, but it encourages and admonishes us in places um, where the gospel is birthing good fruit. And so we pray for that tonight, Lord. We thank you for the gospel of Mark. We thank you for the University of Montana, Lord. Make us faithful laborers here. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, um, rather than spending a whole lot of time breaking down all three of these parables um, systematically, what I want to do is I want to go back through that theme I just gave you, this theme of the gospel having the power to save from judgment and bring us into a new kingdom. And I kind of want to pick apart that theme and show how all three of these parables interact and confirm that and communicate that. And so our first point tonight is that the gospel has power. The gospel has power. Look with me. Um, we're picking up right where we left off last week, Mark 4, 21 through 22. And he, he is Jesus, said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And so we talked last week a little bit how, like that phrase, if anyone has ears to hear, is like a first century mic drop. It's like, you better pay attention. Um, and so Jesus has given this, and he's eliciting them um, to respond. And I'm going to confess a flaw of mine when it comes to reading the Bible. And that's, I've been, I've been re- like my grandpa was in the church, my grandpa before my grandpa, which would be my great-grandpa, was in the church, my family was in the church, I was in the church. It's like I have I I like when I sneeze, Bible stories come out of my nose. Um, I, I've I've read all of Scripture multiple times. I I know it. And so when I read this, what my mind automatically did is I read it poorly, and I read it with the theme like I know what the Bible is saying here. I know it's being communicated. And what I actually did is rather than paying attention to the word and grammar of Mark, I. I assumed that it was the same recitation of the parable that we get in different Gospels like Matthew and Luke. And that's where you get this line where it says, do not put a lamp um, under a basket. Or who that has a lamp would put it under a basket. And in that, the subject of the parable is us. And we have a light, and we should not put that light under a basket. We shouldn't hide that light. We shouldn't try to, to, it said a city on a hill cannot be hidden. If we have the light, right, uh, let, the, let your light shine. What's the old song that we used to sing in church? Uh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bush. Oh, no, I'm going to let it shine. 
It's where we're teaching little kids to put their hands over candles because it makes sense. Um, and, 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 but, but honestly, in those two instances, in Matthew and Luke, those, those are right interpretations of the text. In that instance, Jesus is saying, you who have a light, don't hide it. You have a light. It is no good for that light to be put under a bush or under your hand in Sunday school. Let it shine. Hold that finger up. Um, but the, Mark's passage is different. And look at the grammar again of verse 21. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on the stand. And so the subject of this sentence, and it doesn't come, this is, this is where I took a Greek class and this is like the first practical application of Greek I've had. The, in English, the subject is kind of vague and it's loosely the lamp. But in Greek, the lamp is the subject. The subject of this passage is the lamp. It's not us. It's this lamp. And not simply this lamp, it's a lamp. And because in Mark's recitation of the story, we're not the lamp, Jesus is. What Jesus is really saying here is that it might, and we've seen this in, in Mark, haven't we? We've seen how Jesus is doing great miracles, and yet there's still unbelief. And Jesus is choosing not to fully reveal himself yet. And what Jesus is saying here in this parable, he's saying, I may not yet be known as the Savior, but I have come so that one day the world will know full well that I am the Savior, that I am the light of the world. And see this illustration, if we just think about it logically, that's what parables are. They're stories. Jesus is trying to get us to think in story form. Um, this illustration probably isn't set up during the daytime, right? People don't light their lamps and put it under their bed or on a stand during the day. Lamps are used when it's night. Lamps are used when it's dark outside. So what Jesus is saying here is that he is the light, the exclusive light, the only light in an otherwise dark world. Jesus is what the world needs. There's no source of illumination. There's no source of safety. There is nothing in this world like Jesus. Jesus is unique. Nothing replicates him. Nothing comes close to him. Jesus alone is unique and needed and specific in an otherwise dark world. As you're saying, hey guys, all of this stuff that's going on, you crowds that are sitting here watching me, you may be confused. You may be wondering what's going on. But one day, all of this will be made clear and you will know that I am the light of the world. That I am something wholly other. Jesus is the power, the greatest power the world has ever seen. But he's not only the power, he's an effective power. He's a working power. Skip down to the next parable in Mark 4, 26 through 28. So here we see, if you have an ESV, it's titled Parable of the Seed Growing. Verses 26 through 28 says this, And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man scattered seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And I love this, this picture um, that Mark is painting here. And, and, and we discussed a little bit last week. We discussed um, briefly the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God um, is a place of ultimate rule. The kingdom of God is the greatest reality the world will ever know. And we started in it in the garden. Those of you who are at retreat this weekend, this is what we looked at, right? We started in God's presence. We started in the ultimate kingdom. But the kingdom was lost through our sin. But one day, we will get that kingdom again. One day, we'll get that perfect relationship, that perfect, capable rule of God 
And right now, post-Jesus, we're, we're kind of in the kingdom, but we're kind of not in the kingdom. And so Jesus says this. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is like this. A man scatters seeds, and he sleeps. He throws seeds on the ground, and then he went to bed. And he probably went to bed with some anticipation, right? You guys have all been those kindergartners who have put, like, the lima beans in the cup and poured water on it, and each day you get to class, you're, like, waiting for that. My bean died. It never grew. I say it was a bad bean, but it's probably because I don't know how to take care of things. And now I'm going to soon have two children, so I win. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But, but he went to bed with the same anticipation. No one plants things in the ground hoping it doesn't grow. But he went to bed with anticipation. He probably woke up early and checked the seed to make sure it was still in the soil, that nothing uprooted it or overturned it. But look at what we saw in Mark 4, 27. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He, the farmer, knows not how. You see, it wasn't due to the farmer's meticulous farming skills. It wasn't due to his might. It wasn't due to him standing there watching the seed. The seed grew because the seed was potent. The seed grew and the farmer's like, I don't know why it's growing or how it's growing. I sowed it and yet the seed had everything in it. Had all of the power, had all of the nutrients, had all of the potential and the seed itself began to grow. The farmer sowed, the seed grew. And then look back again at verse 28. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. He who has ears, let him hear. <laughs> so, uh, again, no reference to the farmer. What does the farmer do? He throws seeds on the ground and then he goes to sleep. He rises, he checks it. Nothing's there, goes back to sleep. Wakes up, goes back to sleep. Wakes up, goes back to sleep. The seed sprouts, the earth produces, and a crop is formed. And what Jesus is saying here, right, this is a parable. So Jesus isn't just, remember we talked about the area of Galilee. They're known for farming. Jesus is the most underqualified farmer in this whole region. Right? He's not lecturing on farming because they need to know farming. He's lecturing on farming because he's teaching theological parables. He's teaching them through it. And what Jesus is saying here is that we labor with diligent and faithful gospel work in the kingdom, but it is Christ who builds the kingdom. We sow faithfulness, Christ grows salvation. That's what this is saying. We sow faithfulness, we faithfully scatter, we faithfully sow, but it is Christ who builds the kingdom. It is Christ who grows the kingdom. It is Christ who grants salvation inside that kingdom. And this should be of a relief for two areas in our lives. The first is, it's okay if you're frustrated with your spiritual progress. I've been a Christian for, I don't know how many years, I'm not going to do math in my head because I'm bad at it, but I've been a Christian for a long time, and there are days where I'm frustrated with the hardness of my heart. There are days where I'm frustrated with my propensity to sin. There may be people in here who, who, who are coming and are skeptical about this gospel thing, and they're like, why do I keep coming? It hasn't clicked yet. You're struggling to read your Bible. You're struggling to understand why this gospel is such a big deal. You're a little freaked out by all these Christians wearing the same shirts like a bunch of cult people in here. Um, and you're not really sure what's going on. But, but what, what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying is stay faithful. 
Stay committed and let the gospel grow you. Let God work in your heart. Let the gospel take roots. Why? Because the power isn't in your ability to comprehend. The power is in the gospel's ability to dig its roots into you. That doesn't mean you stop providing effort. That doesn't mean you stop doing things that the gospel says you should do. But it means that, that your responsibility to grow is lifted off your shoulders. It's your responsibility to be faithful. It's God's responsibility to grow you. And that's why we see in Philippians this theme of what Christ has started, Christ will bring to completion. So if you are a person who is frustrated with where you are spiritually, cling to Christ. Your growth will not come apart from Christ being gracious to you. So trust that Christ will do that. Take heart that Christ will do that and labor for that and work for that and pray for that. But then celebrate knowing that any growth you have isn't because of what you've done, but you've grown because Jesus has been kind to you. And the gospel has proven that it is powerful to grow you into something you once were not. Secondly, this eases our burden in evangelism. Now, I want you to hear me. It doesn't ease our responsibility for evangelism. It eases our burden in evangelism, okay? According to this story, we're accountable for what? Throwing seeds. That's what we do. We're seed throwers, right? We're, we're the guy who never shoots t- Who's caught a t-shirt in Washington Grizzly from the cannon? No one, because no one ever catches them. I don't know where they go. But this guy, all he does is shoot things up in the air, and somebody catches them somewhere, but it's never been anybody I know. Um, I'm a little bitter about that. Uh, but but we're, we're the guy with the cannon. We're throwing seeds. And we, we looked at this last week um, to where the guy was just throwing seeds all willy-nilly, and these farmers are like, don't throw seeds on a path. It doesn't work that way. But Jesus is like, I'm throwing seeds on a path because it's hard and it needs to grow. And our responsibility is to throw seeds. It's the power of the seed that causes the growth. So, so rest assured, I used to get asked this question, and I don't know where it ever came up, but how many people have you saved? And like, I would always rack my brain. And I remember one, I had this conversation with my neighbor. I remember explicitly on the side of the hill. She was Catholic, I was Christian. She asked me what, it, what the difference was, and I'm like, I don't like Mary. And I thought I evangelized to her. Um, <laughs> And so I would say, well, I told one that Mary's not God, and, uh, and that was the one person I saved. You will never save anybody your entire life. I have not saved anybody. John Lumen hasn't saved anybody. Billy Graham hasn't saved anybody. Paul hasn't saved anybody. Jesus saves everybody. No one is saved outside of Jesus bringing that salvation. But you are sharing the ultimate power for salvation. You are sharing the only means of salvation. And we know not how, we know not when, we know not in what circumstance, which will see growth in our roommates, which will see response from our coworkers. But we know that regardless of if the seed grows or not, we are responsible to sow. So, sow. God, the gospel is the power of salvation. The gospel is power. That brings us to the second point. The gospel has power to save from judgment. And we see this theme in the verse which is immediately after the verses we just read, starting in verse 29, closing the parable of the growing seed. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And so as I was studying this passage this week, that verse 29 um, just threw me for a ringer. 
the entire time because it really breaks the mold. What, what is this harvest that's going on? Sickles sound dangerous and the communists put them on their flags. Like, what's going on here? Um, and and I, I spent so much time trying to look at, at what's going on in this parable and who's doing what and what this harvest means. But I realized that, that any time the New Testament authors speak of a harvest or they're using harvesting languages or they speak of tools used for harvesting, it's usually about God's coming judgment. And what, what, what Jesus is saying here is one day God will come and He will take His sickle to His wheat. And He will take His wheat that has produced and He will put it in its storehouses and it will be with Jesus forever. But the chaff, the wheat that didn't produce wheat, the wheat that wasted the seed, He will take it and He will throw it into the fire to be burned. You see, the, the, the title of this sermon series is Who is Jesus? And our culture, um, if, they're not, if they're not violently with their words opposed to Jesus, the number one thing culture will say, Jesus is love. And a loving Jesus won't let a Buddhist go to hell. A loving Jesus won't let a non-Christian go to hell. And culture wishes to disregard the aspect of hell and judgment because they say it's incompatible with love. If there is a hell, if there is a judgment, then Jesus is not loving. But the reality is, and this is where we Christians have to know our Bible, and we have to take strong stances where the Bible makes strong stances, no one talks about hell more than Jesus. It's not like the New Testament authors, like Jesus did his whole gospel thing and died on a cross, and they're like, hey, we're not getting the following we want. Maybe we should tell people to burn in hell, and that'll work. They made it up like the gospel is failing. Jesus talked about hell. So how is that loving? Because we would affirm Jesus' love. Jesus himself affirms that he is love. John affirms that God is love and that Jesus is a component and God himself. Why is this loving? Because Jesus is graciously and kindly warning us out of hell and back into his love. Jesus, in all of his tenderness, is diagnosing a sick patient who never know they were sick and saying, your disease is terminal and I can fix it. Jesus talks about hell not with a nana-nana-boo-boo attitude. Jesus talks with a hell with look to me and live. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the seed which grows. Jesus is the power. Jesus is the growth. But you are held responsible for your response to Jesus. You are held responsible for your result to Jesus. Look at Mark 21, 20 through 25. So we're hopping uh, just up above this. And he said to them, I'll read the whole thing. So we're reading the whole lamp under a basket thing. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to the light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So big proclamation of Jesus. I am the light of the world. I will be seen. I will be known. I am the Savior. And then look at what he, he says immediately after it. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you and still more will be added. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
So Jesus is saying, people will know me, people will see me, I am the light of the world, and you are held responsible for it. You see, the message, Jesus is saying, he's not saying here, hey, if you plug your ears and if you don't hear the gospel, maybe you'll get through this world not hearing it and you won't be held responsible for it. Like, right, if, if, if we uh, show up to, to class one day and the teacher says, oh, there's a test, and everyone's like, you never told us about a test. See, in that instance, like, well, you're probably not responsible for it because you didn't know it was there. But Jesus isn't saying that some of us hear the gospel and some of us don't hear the gospel. Jesus is saying that the world, because Jesus is the light of the world and that the light has come to be made manifest, everyone has seen God. In Romans 1, Paul says that everyone is without excuse. None of us are born without a knowledge of God. We're all born with a knowledge of God and our hearts reject it. Our hearts don't want to know. Our hearts don't want to to obey. Jesus' message is that the world will know him through the cross and they will see the light and you will be held responsible for your actions towards Jesus. And there are two responses we could have towards Jesus. We see those two responses in verse 25. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the first class Jesus speaks to, the one who has, more will be given. To the one who has not, more will be taken away. Those who believe in Christ have everything in this world. And when the judgment day comes, when the, when the sickle meets the wheat, we will reap Jesus, we will reap the kingdom, we will be with him in glory. And all that we had here on earth, whether we thought it was minuscule or whether we thought it was grand, our greatest days are yet to come. More will be given to you. More will be gained to you. But to the one who does not have Christ, what you have will be taken away. The one who does not have Christ, all you have in this life is this life. And one day when judgment comes, even that which you have will be taken away from you and the wrath of God will justly judge you as one who rejected the light of the world. The greatest thing this world will ever know will be taken from you and will be thrown into the ash heap of eternity. You see, Ian Fleming is the author of the James Bond movies, right? Um, and I actually saw that Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was directed by the same directing crew that did the James Bond that was partners with Ian Fleming, which is weird. Back to my notes. Um, and people say James Bond is actually based on Ian Fleming's life. He was this kind of rich... Um, go get him kind of playboy attitude. In fact, one of the most recent documentaries that came out on Ian Fleming was called The Man Who Was Bond. And he had the girls, he had the riches, he had the fast cars, he had the fame, he had the accolades. And I remember this specific scene in watching this documentary. Well, I don't know if it was a stagehand or if it was one of the directors, and they came up to Ian Fleming and they said, hey man, what is it like being you? And you know what he said? Ashes, dear boy. Ashes. You see, there's a point when those who are far from God will one day realize that everything the world offers and everything they think they need is ashes. But when judgment day comes and that same person finds themselves as an enemy of God, those ashes will seem like precious jewels. 
compared to the eternal damnation they face as one who rejected Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is that the gospel has the power to save from judgment and bring us into the kingdom. You see, Jesus doesn't only save us from death, he brings us into a greater reality. He doesn't just set reset on our sin, he doesn't just set reset on where you will be, but he brings you into something greater. He brings you into the kingdom of God. This is the last parable. Mark 4, 30-32. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make its nests in the shade. And, I, and I, on one sense, I love how this starts because it shows the incomparable nature of the kingdom. Jesus is, Jesus is the author of all language, okay? If anybody could express what heaven and what the kingdom of God will be like, it's God himself, okay? He made language. He could do it. But Jesus here isn't like, let me tell you exactly what the kingdom of God is going to be like. It's going to be like mountains of marshmallow cream flowing down and everything's going to be perfect. Jesus himself the author of all creation, the author of life, the one who breathed us into existence through his words is like, what if anything can I compare this kingdom to? And here we see Jesus bringing, we've seen him cure a man with a withered hand, cure a sick woman, bring a dead man back to life. He's not pointing like, it's going to be like that. He's like, I can't tell you. There aren't words enough. There aren't actions enough. This kingdom is something incomparably better than what is here. Something so much greater than you will ever experience apart from me. And then he gives us this parable of the mustard seed. And there has been no parable more fitting to the church of Christ and of Christ's kingdom than this parable. Because you see in the text that it says the mustard seed is the smallest seed. And, and those of you who are like our botanists in here or seedologists are like, no, it's not. Okay, we know that. And they knew that. Okay? But... In the culture of the Middle East, that was always the comparison that they would use, is the mustard seed. Because it was, it's, it was a, it's, it's not the small seed, but it is a very small seed. But from that small seed would grow a really big bush. And so it was a popular phrase in that day to say that the mustard seed uh, resembled something small. And, and, and why did Jesus choose this? He could have used a cedar tree, this great, strong, mighty thing that stands up bold in the landscape, but he used this small mustard seed. And really, when we talk about the kingdom of God, there's not really a better way to say it. Because the critics of Christianity, the critics of the kingdom of God, can say and rightly say, where is it? Where is this kingdom? This is why the Jews jump ship and aren't Christians. They were waiting for Jesus to set up his kingdom here on earth with bells and whistles and triumphant parades with the head of his enemy on sticks reestablishing a Jewish rule. And so Jesus came and they died and they're like, where's the kingdom? You're not the Messiah. You didn't set up the kingdom. And so people can say that and they could say, where is this? You're saying I need to repent for my sin because there's something better. You're saying I need to change my habits of life because there's something better. Where is it? 
Cancer is still here. Genocide is still here. Racial issues are still here. Poverty is still here. This world isn't getting any better. Why should I think that your route fixes it? Where is its might? Where is its power? Where is its splendor? And my answer would be twofold. Right now, we're not in the ultimate kingdom. But God has granted us glimpses and a taste of his kingdom through his church. You see, the church is not the kingdom of God. The church is going to be so much better. We had a good retreat this weekend as part of the church. That's not going to scratch heaven, okay? It gets better than that. But the church is a place where we experience the kingdom of God because in the church we come together to submit wholeheartedly to the rule and love of the gospel. We submit our lives to the true light of the world, to the power of the seed that grows, and we orient everything around that. And it's not just a Sunday thing. The, the church then goes and we worship with one another on a Sunday, but then we keep each other accountable throughout the week, and we gather at GCF and at community groups, and we study the Bible, and we encourage one another with Scripture, and we encourage one another to go and preach the walls beyond the church. And in the church, we experience the closest to heaven we will ever know until we die. If you want to see the greatest glimpse of what heaven looks like, don't go to Yosemite National Park and stand before El Capitan and be like, this is great. Go to church on Sunday and see the people of God praising Jesus because that's what we'll spend eternity doing and we will never get sick of it. That's where we get a taste. The church is contagious. The church is infectious in all the right ways. It's a place where we encounter the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is also coming. In one sense, there hasn't been much that has grown more rapidly or broadly than the Christian church. One death of a savior, 12 close friends, 2,000 years full of times of plenty and times of persecution, and yet the church has only grown. Through persecution, through affliction, through national civil wars, through language barriers, through epidemics, through politics, it has grown. It's like the bush whose branches are reaching out to the nations and all the birds of the air will come and rest in this. The church has grown here on the earth. The church will continue to grow on this earth through the faithful proclamation of its people. But the best days of the church are still ahead of us. The best days of the church here on earth will come through the faithful evangelism of the church, but ultimately the best days of the church comes when Jesus comes to take back his bride. And in that day, people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation will join together and they will sing that Christ is king to the glory of God the Father. And it won't just be a bush holding birds, but it will be a heavenly church service holding all the nations all together under our Lord and Savior while the tears are wiped away and all the sorrows are eliminated and we stand before God himself for the rest of eternity as his chosen beloved bride. And there we experience the greatest reality we will ever know and it is eternal and it is unending and it is ever increasing every day we're there. That kingdom is coming and in that day, in that coming kingdom of God, we take hope in this current kingdom of God. 
We take hope in the mustard seed. We take hope in the spotty patches of our bushes where the leaves are gone and the branches are raw and the birds aren't there, but we work and we labor and we trust because we're fully aware of the greater kingdom that's yet to come. And we submit every thought, will, and purpose to the good reality that Jesus has graciously brought us into. You see, the gospel has the power to save from judgment and bring us into a greater kingdom. So what does this mean for you? Right? These are good theological truths. We get that. We like that. But what does it mean for you? How can we apply this to our lives? I see two ways. First, we need to hear the gospel. Ten times in Mark chapter 4, Jesus uses the word hear. Right? I always like to do this for reference because in speech class, what do they say? If you want to make a point, what's the first thing you do? Repeat it. Okay? Ten times. Hear, 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 hear. Hear. Jesus isn't just using words willy-nilly. He's stressing a purpose here. Those of you in here who are skeptical to the gospel, who are frustrated with your spiritual growth, I encourage you, keep with it. Keep with it. Keep hearing. There is no hope for salvation outside of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no hope to avoid the harvest of judgment. There is no hope for a seed to grow unless that seed is cast. So put yourself in positions where you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. GCF and Sundays are a great way to do that. Community groups are, but don't stop there. Have theological conversations. Talk to the person who brought you here. Talk to your roommate. Talk to somebody here. Talk to your community group, community group leader. When we go to Jakers, ask questions. When we go on retreats later this spring, be ready to not just, just mindlessly accept things, but why is this the case? And do this so that you can hear the gospel. Do not neglect the hearing of the gospel, for it is the hope of salvation for those who will believe. And trust that one day, in ways we, wait, we may not know how, God will produce the first blade of grass. And then he will produce the ear. And then he will produce the grain. And you will grow. And you will see the true light of the world. But in order to do that, you need to hear it. And hear it well. And hear it frequently. Don't remove yourself from the preaching and teaching and discussion of the gospel. Christians. The application of this, do you see the worth that you have? Do you see the beauty and value of what God has given you? You see, if you claim to be a Christian, okay, let's break this down. If you claim to be a Christian, you are confessing that you have seen the fullness of Christ. You see the light of the world has illuminated your sin, but you also see the light of the world has come and died on a cross so that your sins may be forgiven. And in so believing in Christ, you get his light and none of your darkness. And that's what you're confessing. And if you look back at Mark 4.25, Jesus says, To the one who has, more will be given. What Jesus wants you to do is ask this rhetorical question to yourself. What is it that I have? What do you have? But I, mean, well, I, I mean, I'm not a gifted communicator. You know, I, I'm a new Christian. I, I've been in the church a long time, but I'm kind of skeptical to do anything outside of the church. You know, I'm, I don't make friends easy. I'm awkward in front of people. 
I'm busy. You have the gospel. That's what you have. You have the kingdom of God being given to you. What is it that you have? Everything the world needs. You have it. You see, I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.7. He says this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Paul says, we are treasure, or you have a treasure in jars of clay. And you see, in a world based on self-promotion and self-exaltation, it's easy to like coloring book eyes this text, where it's like, you know what, you've got, you've got an inner spark of treasure inside of you, and you may be ugly and all clay-ridden on the outside, but you've got treasure on the inside, baby. You know it. Yeah, you eat your boogers. You know it. But one day, one day, you'll make real friends. You see, the treasure isn't your sweet, kind heart. The treasure isn't your potential to do something great. The treasure is Christ, which God has implanted in us. We are the clay. Christ is the treasure. Our worth is nothing in and of ourselves. Our worth is not our merit. It's Christ. The hope we have is not our best reality. It's Christ's ultimate reality. And the message we claim is not the beauty of our treasure. It's the beauty of Christ's treasure, which has bought us a kingdom and removed us from the boundaries of death. That's pretty good. That's a good treasure. That's a good weight. We have been granted Christ. We have been granted eyes which see a need. You see, the reason why the three amigos scene is so funny is because it's so foolish. It's playing on folly. It's funny because this is, this is irrational. What's happening here? It's idiotic what is happening here. That he is so blind to the needs of others that he realizes that what they have is the thing he has an abundance of. Do not be so foolish. Do not be so foolish and blind to the weight of the gospel that Jesus has placed inside of you. And I love the aside Mark gives at the end of this. Mark 4, 34. Where he says this, and so this is Mark speaking. He says, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. You see, why do I, what did I wrestle with, with this text? Is because Jesus gave the disciples the right interpretation, and he didn't give it to us. So I'm just shooting at straws here. Um, but what we do have, what God was gracious to give us, is men who are with Jesus who then went and wrote books. You see, the disciples heard this. And in the Bible, there are no writers who express a greater need for evangelism, a greater plea for belief than John and Peter. Men who sat before Jesus as he gave these parables and said, listen, this is what it means. And even though we may not see the connection, what Christ preached and what happened was fervent, passionate gospel proclamation. Why? Because they saw the treasure they had and they saw the need the world had. You see, in John's Gospels and letters, we see over and over again a plea to believe. I am writing these things to you so that you may believe. I'm reading these things to you so that you may believe. I'm reciting these things to you so that you may believe. And in Peter, we see a plea to preach. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. 1 Peter sets the tone 
of this in light of judgment. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. Look at this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You have received a gift. You, Christian, you have the greatest treasure the world will ever know. Are you going to keep it to yourself? Because what Jesus is saying is if you see that treasure and if you see that need, there's no way you can keep it to yourself. We have the gospel. We believe the gospel. We see the kingdom. We hope for the kingdom. Proclaim it passionately. Proclaim it frequently. Bring it up in discussions. Bring it up in your, in your dorm room. Bring it up at lunch with your friends. But see that you have what the world needs and see that God will one day give us a great kingdom of which we are now laboring as a part of. And trust that one day the seed will grow and one day the light will be seen. And on that day, we'll be on the singing side. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Mark. We thank you for the kingdom. We thank you that the best we know now is nothing compared to the best which will once come. And we know that the worst we know now is nothing compared to the worst that we will experience without Christ. So grant us hearts which respond rightly. Grant us a kingdom mind which gives us the authority and the desire to labor in the kingdom. Because God, you haven't told us to build the kingdom. You haven't told us to expand the kingdom. You've called us to faithfully work inside the kingdom. So give us grace to do that. Be kind to your people. Show us the great coming reality of your kingdom. And may that be our motivation to proclaim to every tongue, tribe, nation, and dorm room the glory of Christ Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen.